You're listening to The Constitutionalist. I'm your co-host, Shane Leary, a graduate student at Baylor University, and each week I sit down with my professor and the founder and editor of The Constitutionalist, Dr. Benjamin Kleinerman, to discuss the constitutional implications of political developments and the ideas surrounding the Constitution itself. It's only after the Civil War and after the passage of the 14th Amendment that we start going in the direction of the nationalization of all questions. And you might say that the national government is just too far away to do well. Welcome to the first episode of the Constitutionalist Podcast. I'm Shane Leary, joined by my professor, Dr. Benjamin Kleinerman. Ben, how are you? Good, how are you? Good. Uh, so it's our first episode. I think it's helpful to kind of frame what we're doing here. Um, from here on out, we'll be publishing weekly episodes for the time being generally not more than 30 minutes in length, which will be a mix really of providing a constitutional perspective to American political developments, and then also investigating more general questions with regards to the American Constitution, the framers, and the ideas which animate political life. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with the publication, this is the podcast of theconstitutionalist.org, which is an online publication dedicated to the intellectual and political work of constitutional democracy uh, that seeks to go beyond law simply and examine rather the elements of civil society and the habits and customs and thoughts that undergird and sustain constitutional democracy. So I think, you know, Ben, it might be a good uh, first question to ask, what drove you to start the Constitutionalist? Why did you feel further commentary on this subject was needed at this time? We're very good at talking about, well, we, we talk a lot about Supreme Court cases. I think, though, there's a lot of things in our politics that are driven by or driven by constitutional questions that don't really fit neatly into the category of Supreme Court cases. So, for instance, the Constitutionalist started right around the um, 2000, right before the 2020 election. So we had quite a lot of, we were producing quite a lot of articles about this very constitutional question of transition from one president to another, um, which is a kind of, you know, it's the kind of thing we assume happens, um, but it doesn't necessarily happen. Our, our constitution structures our politics in a variety of ways that we don't always appreciate. Uh, you know, in some ways, the the 2020 election illustrated it nicely for us. So we had to think more about that constitutional structure than we ever had before. So. Yeah, I think that kind of segues into something I wanted to get at with you, which is, you know, I mean, what seems there's kind of two things when I look at it. There's, there's, on one hand. Uh, the Constitution itself, when you look at the extreme ends of the political spectrum, is sort of not really in vogue these days. Um, I think a lot of people see it as a rather sort of constraining thing. Um, people have issues with elements of the regime that they wish to change uh, for the sake of, you know, being able to push certain policies through. But then there's also this idea of, you know, what is constitutional? It seems like we don't really teach that well. And so for the average American, their mind probably goes to one of two places, either the courts, as you said, uh, or the Bill of Rights. And they think of it as sort of just an enumeration of rights. But obviously, the Constitution is, is about much more. It's, it's, it's quite literally the structure of our government, our regime. Um, so, you know, you've talked about how this is this is about far more than rights in the courts, uh, and that each branch has a fundamental role to play. What what does that look like? How should we think of the Constitution beyond simply you know the role of the courts judging what actions are and are not constitutional? Yeah, I mean, I think 
You know, one of the interesting things is when we say constitution, we tend to, constitutional, we tend to say, we tend to mean only the Bill of Rights and what the Bill of Rights per, per, permits and doesn't permit and how the Supreme Court has ruled using the, mostly using the 14th Amendment on what's permitted according to the Bill of Rights. I think though, when you actually read the constitution prior to the Bill of Rights, it's almost entirely about structure. It's almost entirely about how long people serve in office, how they get elected, when they, you know, the relationship between the branches, when they're supposed to talk to one another. So the, it's it's striking actually reading the Constitution prior to the Bill of Rights is very very little about rights. You know, the, the suspension of yeah. the writ of habeas corpus is about as close as you get to an actual specification of what the government can't do. Instead, it's all about structure. And, you know, for the Federalists, at least, the expectation was that constitutionalism would persist so long as the structure was was right. So as long as they got the structure right, you'd, you'd persist in constitutionalism. They had very little expectation, actually, that the courts would be the thing that would preserve a constitution. They would have thought that a kind of... Um, kind of fairy tale hope you know yeah judges there was not sufficient respect for judges at the time to to um to do that you know, so i was i like to tell the story of um i think it was the rhode island legislature there was a judge who ruled that a certain action that the rhode island legislature had taken was unconstitutional according to the rhode island constitution rhode island legislature passed a bill of attainder to arrest that judge um prevent him because he he deemed what they'd done unconstitutional so that's the respect people had for judges it is it is strange to think i mean <laughs> i think if you press people on how they understand the constitution it's sort of like you know the legislative branch and the executive sort of duke it out in terms of determining what policy is. And then every once in a while, you know, nine people in robes step in and say, well, wait a minute, you've gone too far and try to draw them in. And that we just assume there's a certain implicit respect for that decision. But, but each branch itself swears its own oaths to preserve the constitution, uh, members of government from the president and yeah. down. Um, so, to what degree does the legislator or the president have a say in what is and isn't constitutional? Well, I think the better way of framing it might be to what extent does the constitution frame what they're doing? You know, in other words, the, mm -hmm. cause I, I, it's, it's a question of, I mean, the president has certain responsibilities assigned to him by the constitution. For instance, Actually, Congress, the Constitution specifies nothing about the about Congress's oath to the con to the Constitution. It's only the president that's assigned a specific oath to swear before he becomes president that to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution. Um, so that, in a way, shapes his responsibilities as president. And you know, so as a single office with a set of responsibilities among which is to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution. The president's going to re relate to politics different than legislators who, who's, uh, whose responsibilities are to legislate within the Constitution, you know, but mm -hmm. not to preserve it in the same way. So what presidents are trying to do and what Congress is trying to do is structured differently by, by 
the Constitution. And do, I mean, do you think, so I, I think these sort of misunderstandings are, you know, pretty pervasive throughout American society and, 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 and not just, you know, those who haven't taken the time to, like not non-college educated Americans, but even those who, who go through the university system, even, you know, professors, some people who are teaching the Constitution don't seem to understand it. What vision do you think, I mean, I've heard you talk in other interviews about sort of Publius having a, a sort of pedagogical aim in the Federalist Papers. To what degree should we expect the ordinary citizen to, you know, understand this process, um, you know, in, in the way you've articulated it? And is there more we can do to, I, I don't know, to help facilitate that? Like, do you think, do you think should properly educating Americans in the Constitution, is that, is that, you know, would the founders have seen that as a worthwhile aim? Or was that something to be left to, you know, people who would end up in government? I mean, I, I think, I think the expectation, honestly, was that if you have separation of powers and separation of functions, that each branch, in order to justify its authority, would educate, would have an incentive to educate the public regarding what its authority is. And Mm -hmm. so the public would be educated not through politics, through the... um, the interests of the man, as Madison said, shapes the constitutional rights of the place. You know, so his the interests of the various politicians would be to articulate constitutional arguments and thus, in a way, educate the public regarding what the Constitution does and doesn't per- permit and and encourage. Um, I think, in other words, I'm not sure. The extent to which, I mean, well, let me take this back a little. Madison, one of the Madison has a debate with Hamilton, in which the question of executive power is at stake. And one of Madison's key arguments in the debate with Hamilton is that Hamilton's argument would complicate the Constitution too much. Hamilton's trying to argue that the executive has an inherent power to take certain actions that aren't specified in the Constitution. Madison says. You do that, you start losing the landmarks that orient us around the Constitution. Uh, the The Constitution is supposed to be a simple document that the people can understand. You know, it's what, like five or six pages. Um, it can fit in your pocket. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, it doesn't require much. Um, it really doesn't actually require all that much in terms of education. Yeah. So if that's the case, I mean, how have we just like, like, what is your estimation of the current situation? I mean, do you, do you, do you understand us as having a healthy respect for constitutional process and, you know, the way in which the framers intended for this, you know, regime to play out? Uh, it, it seems like we've kind of manifestly failed so educating was, citizens to a large degree. <laughs> I mean, I think if you, if you were to, the key problem is Congress. You know, I mean, this mm-hmm. is this is the you know, refrain of all people in America that when you get down to it, it comes down to Congress failing. But I think it does come down to Congress failing. You know, that is the expectation yeah. of the of the founders was that Congress would assert the legislative rights of the place. That is, Congress would care about being legislators and not just politicians. And so, and and thus Congress would push back against presidents trying to do all the legislation because I think the 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 
the thought of the founders and really anyone in the 19th century was that Congress best does legislating. You know, the the yeah. the adjudication between different interests in, in Congress is the way to accomplish good legislation, not just the president saying it. You know, the president on his own isn't going to be able to articulate all the various interests of America in the way you'd want in legislation. So I, I think, in other words, you know, the, if we're going to point fingers, probably it's Congress's fault, you know. Um, well, just that, I mean, that speaks to your earlier point that, you know, the citizens are sort of educated by watching the branches perform their constitutional roles. Like you, you, you're, you're meant to see the process unfold. And so when one branch sort of stops functioning, you can't really blame the American people for, I mean, if I had to, when I look at the average American and, right. and, and, you know, speak to certain people about the political process, it seems to me that they sort of, they view, they wish the courts would take certain actions to protect certain rights. And they wish Congress would get out of the way of the president, which given the way things have played out for the past several decades, it, it, it's, it's hard to fault them for that. It does seem, you know, both academics and average Americans alike are frustrated with Congress. People who study the Constitution and work towards its preservation may come at that from a different view and say Congress should be asserting its constitutional role, whereas I think a lot of Americans see it as, you know, what the hell is it doing there, really? You know what I mean? It's just sort of in the way of presidential yeah. platforms that they vote for, and they get frustrated that, you know, it sort of just allows the other party to block a Democratic mandate every four to eight years. Yeah, and to be, I mean, it's partially that Congress encourages the people to think Congress should get out of the way, you know, especially if there's same party rule in, in Congress and the president, Congress is more than happy to get up mostly to get out of the way because it's easier to get reelected yeah. if they don't take as much of a stance on anything, really. If they, if they just go along to get along, they can mostly get reelected. So the, Again, the the legislative give and take that's essential to good legislation disappears in a Congress that only cares about getting reelected and is willing to give the president, to allow the president to do a, a tremendous amount of things. I mean, I think probably the key cultural change is the notion that the president should be doing all these things. Yeah. You know, the notion of the president as kind of legislator in chief is a key cultural change. In the 19th century, there really wasn't that notion of, of presidential power. That's a that's a 20th century phenomenon um, that keeps getting more sort of ingrained in us over the course of the 20th century. I mean, in the 1950s, you still had Congress trying to do things. Even in the 1980s, you had Congress trying to do things. Congress tries to do things now, but it's mostly either obstruct or go along with the president. Yeah. They don't try to craft their own legislation. Yeah, I mean, it's really quite an amazing situation, what's happened to Congress. I, I haven't worked on the Hill personally, but I did spend – about a year in the New York State Assembly after undergrad. And that was really an amazing experience because I, you know, I was all sort of hopped up on the Federalist Papers, uh, political theory, all these things. So I had an idea of the founding. I had an idea of what government looked like. And then when I came in, I saw, you know, into a state legislator, I saw something quite different. And that was representatives acting almost like lobbyists, I, uh, lobbyists and customer service. 
it seemed that most of what we did uh, was try to get the various bureaucracies to help people, uh, try to help people understand how to navigate the bureaucracy. And there was almost no deliberation in the entire session I worked through. Almost every bill would be tabled, and then everything was done in a fury uh, over a couple days at the end of the, the session to get the budget done. Um, so, But it really seems like you know, that's obviously a st- an example of a state legislator, even at the federal level. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Chris DeMuth, um, now at Heritage, formerly president of AEI and a distinguished fellow at Hudson Institute. He's done quite a bit of work on the administrative state and regulation. And and he describes congressmen in exactly the same way and, and, and you know, provides this example of new regulators coming in and congressmen, are region- uh, uh, you know, immediately flocked them. Um, to try to lobby them on certain issues that those bureaucrats will be making rules on. And so you're left with this sort of chicken and egg situation where the citizens don't remember or understand how Congress is supposed to function, and they don't really hold them to that standard. And Congress is not educating its citizens in how it should in how it should function. Uh, and maybe it's forgotten. Yeah, I mean, I would say that that role for Congress, the the role, the um, constituent service role, isn't unimportant. I think it, the the expectation for the founder for the Constitution was always that that particularly the House would have some there'd be an important role for Congress in representing the people in that kind of way, not in a deliberative way, but in a kind of service way. And I think especially. Once you have the administrative state, so much there's so much there's so much administration and so much that now the government is doing that Congress has a role in in kind of adjudicating what the government is doing and helping people go through that process. So I think, in other words, once you the creation of it of so many administrative bodies creates all kinds of new work for Congress of the sort of the constituency service type. Um, I, I would say that the crucial problem might be in the Senate, where the expectation was that the Senate would deliberate, that it would be the body of deliberation um, different than the House because further from the people, because longer terms in office and so it would represent something, you know, a kind of something closer to an aristocratic body of sorts that would um, care about deliberation and care much less about constituency service. I, so if we're trying to identify where things went wrong, it's probably in the Senate. You know, the, um, the House was always going to be too big for real deliberation. You know, anything, all the deliberation would probably happen in in backroom deals and things like that. The, the, that wouldn't have surprised the founders of the Constitution. I think what what might have concerned them is a Senate that isn't doing any kind of deliberation now. Um, yeah, so I think that's the, the, the problem then. If we're really going to say where the problem is, it's probably in the Senate. Yeah, and it does seem that we sort of profoundly underestimate the effect that direct elections has had on the Senate. I mean, you think about going from 
a situation in which the members of the Senate are sort of filtered through the state government. They're maybe other than a governor, they're they're the best uh, politicians available in that state who are then sent to this deliberative body, uh, whereas now they have to worry about elections. And it's in many ways a far more democratic endeavor than uh, the House has to deal with. The House has to deal with these much smaller districts. The Senate has to deal with entire state populations, rural, metropolitan, multiple cities, many more interest groups, um, which seems to eat away their time and and maybe even alter the the character of the sort of person who would end up in that position. But uh, you know, on the, on the note of the House, I, I've always found it funny. The House is intended to be the representative branch. Uh, it's supposed to most directly represent the people. So I've always found it sort of funny how you know you'll have establishment types, especially especially people within the Beltway, uh, who get very upset. Um, and a representative like Marjorie Taylor Greene, for instance, who they who they view as a little bit rougher in their presentation of ideas and and to have ideas that that uh, really great against elite opinion. Um, but if you go to you know Trump country, ordinary Americans, and you know I don't want to conflate. I've been using this term ordinary Americans. I don't want to conflate. Uh, there are many different types of Americans, but. Say I were to go into a small town where you know that was largely red politically, um, I would hear you know similar ideas to the sort of thing Marjorie Taylor Greene says, and so it doesn't seem to be a bad thing that that voice is represented in in Congress through the House. But I think we'd expect something very different from senators. Yeah, I mean, there've always been the the House has attracted you know sort of crazy types or not you know, um types like Marjorie Taylor Greene since it's since the very beginning i mean in fact <laughs> i was watching um or no there was someone who gave a lecture on the 19th century house and how often there were like fights in the house and you know there was real threats of violence in the house um which is hard to imagine now but it wasn't it was a rough body. It's always been, in a certain way, a rough body. So the the existence of you know types like Marjorie Taylor Greene, I think, wouldn't be the place we'd want to worry is when those people end up as senators. You know, you'd want something a little better for the Senate than for the for the House. Um, you know, I think um, ordinary Americans are supposed to have their their voice. You know. Um, I don't think all of their voices are like Marjorie Taylor Greene's, but you know, some of their voices. <laughs> so, no, certainly, and I, and I just mean one would expect to find these arguments throughout the country. Uh, but yeah, it's interesting I mean, what you're saying. It seems almost as if, in our degradation of the Senate and just the sort of cultural transformation we've had and our expectations of, of Congress generally. We sort of draw the House and the Senate towards a mean in our expectations where, you know, we lose sight of the rough nature of the House. And at the same time, we lose sight of the sort of aristocratic nature of the Senate. And we draw them towards, you know, a sort of shared expectation, lowered in some sense, raised in another of what a what a legislator should be. Uh, it's leveled, one could say. And these both just sort of become two alternate paths to legislation. Yeah, that's good. I, I like that. I think that that's that seems right. You know, so that we have too high expectations for the House, too low, too low expectations for the Senate, and and both end up sort of 
Um, yeah, we, we, and in a way that goes back to what we talked about earlier, the, um, the extent to which the constitution is supposed to educate us in our expectations, you know, that if we have higher expectations for senators, they'll, you know, hopefully live up to those expectations. And one of the, the mechanisms there was that the Senate, to be a senator, you'd have to be articulating higher expectations. And so it's a kind of feedback between what the senator says about what he's going to do and how the people respond to that and then their their correspondent expectations. I, I just think... I mean, that whole notion of the Senate has mostly disappeared. You know, whether, I'm not sure whether to fault direct election, because in a mm -hmm. way, I think sometimes the direct election stuff is overstated. There there was, um, most of the Senate was going in the direction of direct elections at the state level already prior to the, the passage of the men amendment, you know, standardizing it. So... Um, it has again, you know, I said that there, that cultural expect, yeah, well, yeah, I'd put it this way it, it's a matter of cultural expectations. You know, pol our political culture has certain expectations. I said before, the expectation now is that presidents will legislate and have big legislative agendas. I think we also just don't have an expectation that senators will act like senators you know um we don't have higher expectations for them weirdly we have higher expectations for house members in a certain way um yeah or at least we pretend to when we complain about what they do you know i think each side complains about the the low side you know so the republicans complain the aoc isn't sufficiently um impressive and democrats complain that Marjorie Taylor Green or MTG. You know, yeah, just like yeah, yeah. Happens. Pointing out these 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 <laughs> reps on each side that uh, <laughs> are are in some way you know eroding the dignity of the body. Um, <laughs> yeah, but that's really interesting. What you say. I mean, so I guess you know my understanding had always been that you know I, I guess amendments don't come out of nowhere. So you make a good point that um, there was already sort of this democratizing you know trend to the Senate. Which mean, which is to say that there was also there was there was already a sort of maybe shift in culture expectations occurring, um, and that kind of leads me to I think you know what would be maybe a good closing question for today's episode. No. Uh, it's a big question, so you know feel free to bat this away if it's too much to bite off. But you know if you already had this sort of cultural drift away from the framers' intention for the Senate, and that in and of itself changes the Senate, which then changes the sort of constitutional and political lessons that the branches are providing to the American people. Um, I guess I just wonder, you know, constitutions as they are thought of in a general sense, maybe, maybe not by modern people today who are, they're thinking on constitutions are sort of driven by the American experience in some way. But when we think of it from a, the political theory perspective, we think of a way of organizing political power and laying the foundation of laws uh, such that the regime points to and cultivates a certain way of life. Uh, and so, you know, we have this classical understanding of a constitution that it shapes the souls of its citizens. 
the framers view i think is complicated and, and we're not going to be able to definitively answer that here but one could and people do make the argument that part of the american experiment or liberal democracy is that uh if we wish to conflate those things is is setting that project of shaping souls aside to you know set up a limited government which allows for individual human beings to pursue their own good and in other words sort of shape their own souls in a way um so i, I guess my question is does the American Constitution seek to shape souls in this sort of classical way? And if so, did it fail in doing so by allowing these sort of, you know, trends to develop such that it eroded the framers intention? I mean, I think you you might say that the, the problem is that the, the shaping of souls would have been thought by the framers to be the responsibility of state governments, not of the national constitution. And so, um, I think at the end of the day, they would have found it odd to think of the national constitution as the place where shaping of souls would happen. Um, and I mean, the, the anti-federalists, I think, would have worried that people would come to think of the national constitution as the place where shaping of souls would happen and that the national constitution wouldn't be capable of doing that shaping. So you might say that the I'm not sure the Federalists fully thought this question through, honestly, that the, if you, if you have the supremacy of a national constitution and the non-supremacy of the, the state governments, then won't after a while the national constitution be the thing that's shaping us more than the state governments? I, I, probably. I mean, I, I would say though that it was mostly working, federalism was mostly working prior to the passage of the 14th Amendment. And it was, in fact, working too well in a certain way, working so well that we split off into state, into, you know, that it was kind of principle of dissolution. So it's only after the Civil War and after the passage of the 14th Amendment that we start going in the direction of the nationalization of all questions. And you might say that the national government is just too far away to do well at shaping souls. You know, that the national government has to work through administrative units and things like that. It has to work in a way at a distance from the people almost necessarily, you know, and so the disaffection with the national government in the population now, because I think both in a way it's a bipartisan disaffection. Um, that disaffection arises from, in, in a way, the impossibility of a government as big as, as ours really doing much in the way of um, both shaping souls and self-government being very difficult at such a distant level. So, yeah, that, I mean, I don't know if that answers your question, but uh, your question is huge. No, and, yeah. Um, <laughs> it, it does. And, yeah, it, it, points, it points us to a favorite, you know, I mean, we've argued about this many times in seminar and, and elsewhere about, you know, federalism and whether or not you can divide sovereignty. And so we'll certainly have to take yeah. that up uh, in later episodes. But just, I guess, yeah. maybe to put a cap on this, it is, I like the way you frame that in terms of the nationalizing of all questions. And uh, I mean, Mm -hmm. I just think we lose sight of how big this thing is. Um, I recently was at a talk and um, 
the speaker, you know, very emphatically said America ha- is not and never has been an empire. And, and that is, you know, I'm not prepared to say it is one way or the other. I might lean in a certain direction. We can get into that in another time. But it, it immediately, the, the, the first thought I had was I just Googled how big was the Roman Empire at its height. And, the, you know, and, and size isn't the only metric, but the Roman Empire at its height was, I think, 2.4 square million miles or something like that. And the United States today is 3.6. So when we talk about the nationalizing yeah. of all questions or when we think of yeah. how to deliberatively and, you know, solve things through Republican means uh, at that scale, it's really just an insane project um, if we if we choose that to be our route. Um, so and you can say, I mean, someone might might counter and say, well, you know, everyone knows about the we know each other be- better through the nationalization of media and stuff, but I, I don't think we do actually. We know like people up north have a kind of picture based on the media and based on their conceptions of what Texans look like and act like, but they've very little actual experience of that and, and vice versa. Yeah. So the there's a kind of distance from each other in just that we don't know each other, you know, and this was actually the anti-federalist worry is that you, you can't create a constitution. You can't create a government over people that have no real interaction with each other, you know, um, to know people, you have to know them, like know them or at least know someone who knows them, you know, know them and, and know their experiences and, and yeah. like know something about what your legislature. I mean, it's always funny to me that like in, in New York politics, for instance, you'll have people, you know, who grew up in Manhattan and lived there their whole lives as the main author on an agricultural bill. <laughs> you know, like, it's, you know, the sort of people who like, who, who, who slow down and park the car to take a picture of a deer on their trip up to Westchester are like, you know, afraid of a cow licking them are going to write these laws, you know, and that's like, and I don't think we think of it in those terms. We tend to, you know, you hear firebranded rhetoric about like the bureaucrats in Washington all the time, but it really, it speaks to a much more, uh, just a human impossibility to know that which is so distant from you. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And so, you know, a lot of the American people are frustrated with bureaucrats in Washington who are, essentially doing the legislating since Congress isn't and feel very little connection to those bureaucrats. You know, Washington is its own own space different than anywhere else. You know, you sort of, it, it's its own universe almost, you know, and the rest of the American people don't feel a connection to it. You know, it's it, the, that movie, um, what's the movie? Gosh, that I don't movie. Know. Which one? Um, the movie. There, there's DC, and then there's everyone is is else is out. It's it. There's three parts. Um, it's, it's fine. <laughs> there's three. There's um, districts. Yeah, or the district. Three part movie. No, there are three parts. There are three. <laughs> it's a trilogy. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Are you talking about, is, it, is this like Divergent or something? Is this like the... No, no, not Divergent. The other one that was like Divergent, um, but Not better, The Hunger actually. Games. Yeah, The Hunger Games. Oh, we're talking about The Hunger, Hunger Games. Games. Okay. Yeah, I'm talking yeah, about yeah, The yeah, Hunger yeah, yeah. Games. <laughs> drew yeah. a blank on the name of it. <laughs> <laughs> and okay. it's funny because I bring it up all the time in class because it's actually, <laughs> I mean, I think it's like accidentally 
thoughtful about this point you yeah. know in that the the city people live behind a wall apart from everyone else and everyone else is sort of imposed upon by the city people yeah it's not that far from what america sometimes looks like now so. <laughs> well um we've gone way over our our, our, our uh, goal of time for the first episode but i think this is a great conversation so i think that's a as good a note to end on as any but, uh, <laughs> thanks for listening uh, and uh i'll talk to you again next week all right take care Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Constitutionalist. If you have a moment, please rate and review this episode on whatever platform you're listening on. And be sure to check out our written publications and blog at theconstitutionalist.org. And from myself and Professor Kleinerman, we'd like to offer a special thanks to the Jack Miller Center, whose generous funding makes this podcast and The Constitutionalist itself possible. See you next week.